0: Hi and welcome to the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. I'm your host Adam Harris. This podcast is all about helping leaders understand how do they get focus, flow, and fun. Over the course of this podcast, I'll be working with and interviewing senior people, leaders, and authors from around the world who will be giving their insights, their questions, their challenges around how they and the people that they work with become frank and fearless. Hi, and welcome to the Frank and Phyllis Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Harris, and today I am joined by Andy LaPata. Andy and I have known each other for a number of years, uh, originally through the Professional Speakers Association, but our friendship and relationship has built over the years. This is going to be a really interesting episode because we're going to cover a number of different things and we're not going to tell you what they are. So let's start off. Uh, Andy, tell us a little bit about you, where you've come from and where you're at now.
1: (laughs) How long did you say this podcast was, Adam? (laughs) Yes, I've... Well, in professional terms, I've been involved in the world of networking and professional relationships for over 20 years now. My father co-founded a business network back in 1998, at the end of 98, in the last century. And I joined in its fledgling state six months later when I walked away from my corporate job saying I'm never working for anyone else again. Uh, Ideally, just to get a bit of cash flow in while I became a freelance writer. But I'd never heard of networking until... He, he set up this this organization uh but I found it was something that I did naturally and had been doing naturally uh took to it like a duck to water um and, and we built that up to be national uh we opened in Spain as well when we my father and I sold out to our business partner uh after seven years I think it was um and we had two and a half thousand members around the UK at that point uh, and from then we we had a uh, a brief episode with an, a very early online network, uh, but it wasn't where my heart was. Uh, and, and that was in speaking and mentoring, training, writing. Uh, so, so over the last 13, 14 years or so, uh, I've been building the business I- I in those fields. So that's the very, very brief professional overview.
0: So networking's changed quite a bit. I mean, you and I first met and there was this this synergy of not just networking, but actually wider than that around aspects of connecting people. Um, but networking in its truest form has actually changed quite a lot, especially over the last 10 years. What have you seen uh, and how do you think the industry is going to move forward?
1: Well, actually, I, I would challenge that um, and, and, and actually invert that phrasing. Because I think networking in its truest form is the same as it's ever been. Because it's the building of connections, as you said. It's the building of professional relationships. And that can be done in a formal setting, which is how we tend to perceive networking these days. And I think that's what you're referring to. Or it can just be done informally. Uh, You know, meet my brother-in-law, I think you two would... Uh, you'd have a lot in common. That's networking. Uh, let me give you some feedback on your idea. Let me share some some of my experiences. That's networking. That's its purest form. Uh, in its more structured form, the changes. I mean, the predominant change has been the explosion of networking opportunities. You know, when when my father. Uh, and Michael co-founded Business Referral Exchange, which was the network. As I say, I'd never heard of the term before. You had, BNI had been around in the UK for a couple of years. At that stage, Chambers of Commerce were around. There was the occasional independent group. But networking, formal networking opportunities outside Chambers of Commerce, maybe Federation of Small Businesses, I'm speaking about the UK here, were few and far between. Within a handful of years... You could network at breakfast, you could network at lunch, you could network at dinner, you uh, you know, and then social networks came along and you didn't even have to go out. You could network in your underpants. So uh, the explosion of opportunity uh, was shift number one. And the second shift uh, was, I think, came around the time of the crash in 2008, because the social networking sites and particularly LinkedIn were in their infancy at that stage. I think LinkedIn would have been five years old in 2008. And there weren't that many of us on it um, in comparison to today. I mean, there were plenty of people, but they were people who were in that space more. And it was, I think those that were on it, a lot of people just simply had a profile and that was it. I mean, you've still got a lot of people in that position now, uh, but more people understand how to use it. And I think what happened, networking um, was a dirty word. You went into corporate space. When I first went into the corporate space and used the word networking, I nearly got thrown out of the building a couple of times. You know, it really was a, a filthy word. That shifted in a year. When people started seeing their colleagues lose their jobs in the crash, mm-hmm. they realised, hold on a second, I need to start paying attention to this. I've, n- I've not actually seen a, a, a growth curve of LinkedIn membership, but I would expect to see a big spike around that time. I certainly noticed an increase in people being on LinkedIn and increase in engagement on it uh, from around that that stage. So I would say that was a, a key year in in networking becoming mainstream. It mm-hmm. still is a dirty word for a number of people, but it has shifted.
0: So, from a leader's perspective, why is it important? First and foremost, that, that you know that they're on LinkedIn, but second of all, that they are networking because I, like you say i think there's been this uh, this aspect around this dirty word of of networking but actually when you look at it people are doing it inadvertently every single day yeah. but actually when you say when you say you're now consciously going to go into doing a net, into a networking event or a networking environment people just seem to kind of you know revert and insulate
1: well there's several reasons for that and number one it's an inauthentic environment now don't get me wrong there is a definite place for the type of group that I used to run Uh, and uh, if you are strategic and thoughtful about the way you approach it then you engage with that I, I emceed a book launch recently it was my first live event uh post pandemic someone commented how great it felt to be in a room and everyone was chatting naturally and engaging how do you know the author do you know the publisher like being at a wedding because they didn't put the n-word networking into that context uh, and so we have to recognize that when we take what is an inauthentic environment and make it authentic and natural people take to it a lot more uh, a lot more smoothly but actually what I would say is let's get away from networking equals events networking equals LinkedIn let's just focus on building professional relationships and understand that's important and whether you meet people or reconnect with people in a formal structured environment or whether you meet them and re-engage them reconnect with people through an online site or whether you do it because someone introduces you or you bump into each other or whatever it might be at a business meeting it's still relationship building and that's what we should be focusing on rather than networking.
0: So where have you started your where's the most obscure place that you've ever started a relationship that has then led to business?
1: That's an interesting question I don't know off the top of my head if I can Answer that. What I would say is there are books on networking that will tell you to talk to anyone anywhere. Uh, and in fact, like, there's a book with that title, pretty much. Uh, that's not what I I preach. Well, I, I mean, I have been in that position and got business from a conversation on a flight. Mm. Uh, and, and and that's quite actually quite an interesting example. But then I'll come back to why I don't preach that. Um, so. Well, actually, I'll answer the two together. So let's take the flight as an example, because you get people who will see any flight as a networking opportunity. Talk to everyone around you. I'm actually quite a quiet, private person. i become quite introverted the more I've done this over the years. So if I've travelled to a foreign country to deliver a talk, I've been very involved with the client and the audience and, uh, and being on my game for, say, two days. That airport is, um, is a haven for me to just switch off and get my energy back from being on my own. I don't want to, to necessarily strike up conversations. It doesn't make me antisocial. Someone strikes up a conversation with me, I'm open to it, but I don't go seeking them. And actually, I'll be buried with my head in a book and, my, uh, and listening to music most of the time. But that flight was a good example because it was... And this is what was interesting about it. It was a low-budget air, airline uh, in economy and someone sat it was packed absolutely packed and someone came in a tall guy in a business suit i was in the window seat he sat in the middle seat at the last second and he smiled and i smiled back and he smiled at the guy in the aisle seat and they smiled back but i had my headphones in my book out i was reading and listening so we came into land obviously the headphones come out the kindle goes away he offered me uh i can't remember if it was a chocolate or a Bag of sweets. He he offered me something. So of course we struck up conversation. Fifteen minute conversation, uh, for coming into land in London and and on the way out. And he turned out to be one of the most influential people in his sector in the world. And that led to business with his company, which was an American company with a UK office. He was the global CEO, I think, or CTO. Um, And when I googled him, I was like, he was in economy. In a middle seat sense. on a budget airline, so that's quite an interesting example, and it's a great one uh, to illustrate. Don't don't assume. Yeah. Uh, um, and you know, I, I'll I'll fly business if I fly outside Europe most of the time, but in Europe, I, I you know I think it's uh, it's 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 a disrespect to the client's budget. You don't need to do yeah. that, so I'll fly economy. And, and and you know, there's this snobbishness about oh, I only talk to people in business class. So, that's that's I, I don't know if that's the most bizarre place I've started talking to someone, but it, it illustrates the two points. Uh, not everyone wants to be approached for a business conversation, and actually, your, business, your conversation shouldn't be business, first of all, anyway. But not everyone wants to be approached for a business conversation when they're in their own space in their downtime. But you can always be ready for the opportunity when it arises, and you, you get that just by engaging authentically and naturally in conversation when it happens naturally.
0: So, uh I'm not sure if I should say this on the podcast or not, but I've I've always had a lot of success in the uh, the hot tub or the sauna, actually, Um, (laughs) just because um, I often find that um, for me, people do business with people, especially in the kind of in in the B two B space, and I I think you're right. I think um, there has to be that kind of level of respect, but sometimes I'll start a conversation. And then you, then the conversation just flows, and you see where you get. Sometimes you go on to football, which we'll cover in a bit. Um, and then it's really, it's really fascinating and interesting where the parameters of the conversation goes. I, I, I often, when I'm often speaking to people, I often say, you know, help me understand where your clients come from. And there is this, there's this big aspect around relationships, uh, around, um, you know whether they're existing customers or whether they're prospects or anything is that that actually there has to be this mutual respect and almost flow of conversation and, and relationship and I agree with what you're saying is this, that the caveat of the uh, of putting somebody into that room of networking uh, really kind of uh, challenges uh, you know I think it's probably the ego but I think there's some probably fear that kind of uh, sits beneath it I want to move on now uh, Andy and want to move to because um, you've written a couple of books. Just, just help the audience uh, um, know the books that you wrote and why you wrote them.
1: So I've I've written five books. The the first book I was approached by a uh, I'd just joined the Professional Speaking Association. I joined in two thousand and three. And it would probably be around 2004 or even one of my first meetings. It came. The book came out in 2005. I was approached by a fellow member who said, I want to write a book on running business breakfast meetings. And I was running business breakfast meetings at the time. He was an accountant. Sorry, he was a financial advisor. And obviously, in that industry, there are a lot of business meetings as well at breakfast time. Uh, so we wrote with, with, with a fellow uh, PSA member. So there were three of us uh, building a uh, business on bacon and eggs. So that was the first book. Uh, the, the second one, I I, I was delivering uh, a joint talk, if you like. It was two talks, one after the other, um, with another fellow speaker who you know very well, Peter Roper. And uh, the, the, we, we titled the event, And Death Came Third, because there was a survey in the New York Times where they asked people what they were most frightened of, and death came third. Top Fear was walking into a room full of strangers. The, the number two was speaking in public. So I wrote about networking, or I spoke about networking, and um, Peter um, spoke about public speaking. And after we ran that a few times, and it was very successful and very well received, I remember, I think I was either on the phone to Peter or I was with him, and I remember crossing the Euston Road in London, and we said, this should be a book. And and the funny thing is I said, you, you know, two 45-minute keynotes, We'll, we'll, we've got a book. No, we didn't. We had about a page and a half each, <laughs> so we had to build <laughs> it up from there. Um, but that that turned into a very successful book before the days of uh, the you know email, before the days of social networks and so forth. It came out in two thousand and six. It's probably two thousand and four that we were looking at it. Um, so LinkedIn was only a year old. Facebook wasn't around. So before any of that, we ran the first Amazon campaign. Bestseller campaign certainly um, in recent history. I think it had been done before in America, some time before. And through um, talking to our network and getting their support and running a big campaign, we actually got to number two on Amazon overall on the day of launch. We sold wow. two thousand books in forty-eight hours, uh, which is 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 a phenomenal achievement, uh, particularly without social media to support it. I I don't participate in Amazon campaigns since then because they're just. I think people are tired of them, to be honest. Um, yeah. and, and but that was that was something to be proud of. Noel Edmonds was splashed all over the newspapers. Uh, for for people listening outside the UK, Noel Edmonds was a very popular television celebrity in the 80s in in the UK, and he'd been off the scene for a while. And the day we launched, he had double page spreads in most of the nationals talking about how he'd, he'd landed a new program deal or no deal it got him back on the map and he put it all down to a book called the cosmic ordering service and that sod got us kept us, that, that went, went number, number one. one so um yeah we, we we thought the follow-up could be and noel Edmonds kept a second or something like that <laughs> um so that was book number two Book number three, uh, I published in 2011, along with the second edition of And Death Came Third. That was published by Financial Times Prentice Hall and is called Recommended How to Sell Through Networking and Referrals. Then we have a long gap till 2020. I don't know how I managed to publish two books in 2020. I'll let you guess what happened there. One of them actually was my pandemic book, which was my fourth book, which was written in two weeks and published in 10, I think. And that was Connected Leadership. And that came from a repositioning of the business, uh, new ideas that that struck up. And uh, I was going to write a tips book with just Connected Leadership. Here's things to think about. I showed my mastermind group the chapter list, which was like, these are going to be the 12 tips. And and one of them, who is a very senior learning uh, professional looking after executive education in a global on a global role in, in a multinational company, looked at me and he said, you're going to give this away? And it just made me think, have I got more here than I gave myself credit for? Uh, And I'm really proud of that Mm -hmm. book. So that came out in 2020, Connected Leadership. And then Just Ask, which I'd been working on for four years, uh, came out at the end of 2020. And that's all about vulnerability. And it's really interesting when I look back at the journey, you can track my Mm -hmm. career through my books because I started out writing about business breakfast meetings when I was running business breakfast meetings. I then wrote about networking events while I was still running those breakfast meetings. A lot of my training was around skills. Then I moved to referral at a point where 50% plus of my work was with sales teams on generating referrals. And then in the last year, I moved much more into that connected leadership space, professional relationships and vulnerability. So the books track really well the work I've been doing. And we're working on the proposal for book number six at the moment.
0: Or well, do we get a sneak preview of uh, what the time going to be? <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad that you went through that because I, th- I think for me it builds the context because I-, I think well I don't think I know that you and I really kind of um, really our relationship kind of went to another level when you were just exploring this aspect of mm. just ask about the aspect of kind of the connected leadership and the and the yeah. vulnerability. And I remember you actually we having a conversation and you said, Look, I'm I'm working on some new stuff. I'd love to try it out with a mastermind group. So you I remember you coming and doing a session with my uh with one of my groups, which they absolutely loved. Help us understand uh what the what what just ask is all about and how a little bit more detail as to how you got to that space because I, I, I think for, for me, this is actually is what has really defined you over the last couple of years and actually will, will take you to a different level moving Thank forward.
1: Thank you. Um, so, so what happened, you probably, I, I couldn't put a date stamp on it, I would guess around 2014. So this has been bubbling away for a long time. Uh, my business was really struggling to the point that we got within £400 of our overdraft limit in the business. We was that close. My sister was saying, what's plan B? I was saying there isn't a plan B, this is going to work and we we, we got out of that in the end but uh, we landed two very big contracts in a week, you know two huge contracts in a week which which really made a huge difference. Um, but in that period where we were struggling, I've mentioned the Professional Speaking Association already, uh, I'm sure you've mentioned it on the podcast before Um I I've, I've been a member of the PSA as I said since two thousand and three, a fellow for ten years. Uh I, I I this is my tribe. These some of my best friends have come from this community. And I was going to PSA meetings and people were saying, as they always do, when you first connect at that networking bit at the beginning, how's business?
0: How's business? And
1: I was saying, Well, it's really bad at the moment, we're within four hundred pounds of our overdraft facility. Of course I wasn't. I was saying, it's fine. It's good. at the like, oh, It's great. Because <laughs> that's what we're taught yeah, to say. So, so. Yeah, that's what we're taught to say. And I was at an event in Reading, west of London. And the, one of the speakers, uh, Stephen Howton Burnett, was running a workshop before the session. And he gave us all a workbook, a questionnaire. And it had a series of questions in it. And there were two questions that were pretty much the same. Multiple choice. And it was, how would you describe your business? One of them is, how would you describe your speaking business? The other, how would you describe your non-speaking business? Because some people will have a consultancy or, or, you know, we have lawyers, accountants and so on within the PSA. And there were, the options were, um, I'm trying to remember the exact wording, but it was basically thriving, stable, new or in decline. And so everyone quietly filled in their questionnaires. And then we, Stephen started presenting. And he said, let's go through the questions. And as he got to those questions, he asked for a show of hands. And um, people put their hands up for thriving. People put their hands up for stable. People put their hands up for new. And nobody put their hand up for in decline, including me. Remember, my business is on the edge of going bust and I'm not putting my hand up. And that was that was probably a key moment for me when I realised that I consider myself to be a particularly open person. So if I'm not honest about this, what about other people? And this is a, this is a trusted community of people who understand and have the experience uh, to support. And as I say, our tribe uh, with strong relationships. And if I can't be open here, where can I? So I made a commitment to myself at the time that I would turn around my business with the help of other people and when it was ripe, when it was successful again, because everyone wants a positive outcome, I would deliver the, a keynote talk at the PSA annual convention and convince my tribe to be honest, open and vulnerable with each other. And that happened in 2016. But interestingly, much earlier than that, Uh, About a few weeks, maybe a couple of weeks, two or three weeks after that Thames Valley Reading meeting, I bumped into another fellow speaker uh, in a private members club in London and he said, how's business? And I answered him honestly and his whole demeanour changed and he said, I didn't realise how can I help? And I got two referrals in two weeks from him after that. He had never referred me before. And when I asked him about this later, he said, I never thought you needed help. Which was a really key instructional point. So, the whole idea was I was I was going to be more forthright and open and honest, and I was going to encourage our tribe to do that. And the response to that talk was overwhelming. People were crying in the audience. People don't cry at my talks unless they're really bad. Um, not when you talk. You've talked traditionally about how to work a room, you know that type of thing. But there were people in tears. I got an email from one of the members in in, in one of the regions saying here's an email I've sent to everyone else in my region saying, following Andy's talk, I need to share this with you. Now, that happened two or three times. Mm-hmm. Someone came up to me and said, Andy, you do realise this is always going to be the Andy LaPata conference, don't you? Um, I think that happened the next year, actually, when I ended up in hospital with a nut allergy when I was meant to be getting an award. Uh, that's the one everyone remembers, sadly. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and I, I realised at that point that I had more than just a one-off keynote but I felt if I was going to take this out to yeah. my clients so you're getting a really long answer here if I was going to take this out to my clients uh, I needed to know more than just my story uh, and a few things i patched together and the best way to learn something in depth is not to read books about it is to write a book about it because if you do that properly mm-hmm. you have to learn and I interviewed 50 people, around 50 people from all over the world, people with amazing stories and people who are experts in their field uh, around the questions I wanted to answer around gender, around culture, you know, a whole range of things. Uh, leadership obviously being a key one. There's a whole section on vulnerable leadership in there. So that really helped me go deep in the topic. And that sort of takes us forward to today, where now my my step forward on this topic is is into that deeper into that topic of vulnerable leadership which is what i'm exploring now
0: oh so there's so much to unpack there just a couple (laughs) of things i want to want to add um i absolutely agree with you i I often when i when i meet people it's the case of so how are you yeah yeah i'm fine i often find that um sometimes if appropriate there's a gentle touch on the shoulder or the arm and and if appropriate is important and then i look them straight in the eyes and say no really how are you? So just changing the the tone and the speed, and actually, what I find is is that actually gives people permission to be more open, honest, and vulnerable. Which, especially as a leader, I think for me is really really important. Uh, I I actually was there when you did that, uh, when you did that presentation. I'm interested to know as you're delivering that and you're absolutely being frank and fearless. You're being completely vulnerable and sharing to a completely different level with your tribe. What emotionally was going on for you as you were doing
1: that? And I want to come back, by the way, to that um, how are you point as well, if that's okay afterwards. It's a good question. Yeah. I, the The only point that I really remember, for because I think for, for people who aren't speakers, uh, one thing to understand is that it's easy to think that people that do this regularly for a living just breeze through it and sure there are times when you might be doing that but there's a big risk of complacency if you do that Um, the bigger the event the more meaningful the event or, or sometimes the bigger the fee the more the adrenaline runs through you and I don't think there's a more adrenaline inducing stage than in front of 250 people who all want to be on that stage instead of you and you know are going to be judging you. And in fact, that was part of my close, is that I said, normally, uh, you know, you know, being on this stage is nerve-wracking because you know everyone is there thinking, what's he doing up there and not me? And I said, but stay, I don't care. Because actually, if one of you does something, then my job's done. If the rest of you don't like me for this, then that's fine. I think I put it slightly differently, but it's pretty much that was the point. So the adrenaline would have been pumping. Uh, and... I think it was made easier because I could see the room. You can't always with a big audience. And I could see people were engaged. The point I remember the most, and it still gets me when I share the story, is I close with something that had happened a few months earlier where uh, someone... I hesitate when to call him a friend because we weren't that close, but we, were, we, had, um, we liked each other, we had professional respect, we knew each other fairly well. And one of my regrets is I didn't let myself get as close as I could have done with him. I always thought he was too good to be true, and actually he just was. Uh, a guy called Richard White who a few months earlier had taken his own life. And when I shared that and I talked about his memorial service and how people shared their memories of him, and he, it was always him giving... And never asking, mm-hmm. and how we didn't know at that stage, but we found out the next day that he'd taken his own life because of money problems. When there was a wealth of money in that room, and I knew there were people in the room that knew him. He was briefly a member of the PSA ten years before, and there were other people that knew him through an online network called Academy, which is how we met. That I, I you know, that I could feel my voice cracking up, and I still do when I talk about Richard, but particularly when I could see people in that room. Or I try to avoid eye contact with them. That was probably the hardest thing. Um, but I also I knew that I was in my groove, for want of a better term. I knew that um, it, 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 it was such an important topic to me and such an emotional topic for me that I felt that emotion, that passion came through and it flowed through and it gave me an extra level of energy in the delivery. So those are the things that I, you know, I've never really thought about how I felt in the rest of it. Um, I didn't leave anything. I didn't take anything off that stage. I left it all up there, basically. And I think you could tell that if you're in the audience.
0: Cool. So do you want to go back? Yes. So what you described there, where you talk
1: about how do you really feel? I interviewed Ivan Meisner, Dr. Ivan Mm. Meisner for Just Ask. Um, Ivan uh, founded BNI, as you well know. And Ivan talked to me about semantic differential questioning which is basically what you've just described. And it's a way of opening the conversation. And the reason for this is that when, when you get asked, how are you? You know that a lot of people ask that question as a courtesy. I always say there's two types of people who ask how you are, and by extension, how's business or whatever it might be. Any, any variation on the theme. Two types of people who ask that. People who care and people who don't. And both of them are valid motivations so the people that don't care are asking out of courtesy it's what we do it's a societal cultural norm not judging them adversely for it Um, so part of that is that when you respond you you don't think oh i'm really glad you asked me how i am have you got three hours sit down i'll i'll share the last six months with you i I always share with people let people in step by step so they can decide how far they go so how are you Actually, I'm I'm pretty good at the moment. I've you know it's been a, uh, I had a couple of dodgy weeks, but I'm not too bad. Now the people who care will say, "Well, what happened in the dodgy weeks?" The people who don't care will say, "Well, I'm glad you're okay." Did you see Did you see The Bachelor last night on telly? So you've given them the opt out, <laughs> or actually, let's call it the opt in, because I I'd, I'd yeah. say you've, you've presented them with a door and they choose whether or not they go through. They go through. So what happened? You give them another sentence or two. You get to another door. They can either bail or they go through the next door. So you invite people to go through at their own own pace to the level they're comfortable with. You don't force it on them. But equally, you don't just brush it off with an I'm fine. The, um, the, 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 the flip shot of that, going back to the semantic differential questioning, is understanding that people know this is a societal, cultural icebreaker. Therefore they're going to say, I'm fine, works fine, nine out of ten times. So if you want to get them to open up, you need to ask it again. Now, that's semantic di- differential questioning, which is what one, one approach, no, really, how are you? So that was what Ivan shared with me. And I found myself using it after that interview, and it works. My way is even slightly more subtle, and I think a really good example is, is using the pandemic as the uh, accelerator. So how are you doing, Adam? I'm fine. Mm-hmm. How are you coping with the pandemic? Yeah, it's okay. Not been too bad. What impact has working from home had on you? And, and what I've actually done is go mm-hmm. to an open rather than a closed question, but I've not dived into it. I've gone there gradually. It's a natural progression. But what I'm demonstrating to you, as you did in the way that you approached it, is that I'm sincere and I mean it. And mm-hmm. it's safe to open up to me if you want yeah. to. Which is also important. You don't have to. You mm-hmm. know, if you if you don't trust me, and and I don't mean yeah. that in terms of distrust, but I'm not in your chosen circle. You know, I, I've got a friend of mine, and actually I took offence to it, I'll, I'll be honest, and I shouldn't have done. But she was struggling with a number of things. And a couple of times I said, look, I'm here if you need me. And she's, she said, oh, it's okay, I, I talked to so-and-so. And I took offence to that, I shouldn't have done. And I push. I admit I pushed her away because I, I I took that personally. I shouldn't have done. She has her confidant, and that's absolutely fine. She has one, and that's good. Um, so, you know, don't take it personally like I did.
0: Yeah, and and I think there's this aspect of creating the space and the con the container. And I, I, you know, for me, the body language actually mm. really is quite key. Whether you're online or whether you're face to face, is you know almost kind of the, you know the leaning in you know engaging with deeper eye contact um it's probably it's probably the coach and the inquisitive person within me that i always know that there's a lot of stuff that kind of sits sits beneath but actually if you if you're not getting the response back is that respectfully you have to just uh you know accept and just you know carry on the conversation just carrying on on this theme then as a as a leader what is it that uh, leaders should be doing with their, with their staff specifically around, you know, this concept of creating the space and asking uh, great questions for them?
1: I, I think there's a couple of things you can look at there. Number one is to create an environment where it is OK to be vulnerable. And you start by being open and vulnerable yourself. Uh, the most, you know, take frank and fearless, the, the, the most frank and fearless leaders will actually share their own vulnerabilities with the team you don't have to have a great story you know the 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 massive if i had a i had a breakdown this is what happened story if that happened to you and you're comfortable sharing it it will inspire that culture but don't feel bad because you haven't got a sob story uh, it's absolutely fine but you can you can show that you're not you don't have all the answers you can show that you're not sure of the right path to choose you can seek their insights i think when we when i talk about vulnerable leadership what I mean by that is that people think that leadership is equals strength, and strength means not being vulnerable. Actually, vulnerability is strength. People want certainty from their leaders, but there's a point at which you need that certainty, and it's not all the way through. So problem arises, you explore it with your team saying, let's try and crack this one together. And then you're the one who has to make the final decision. That's where the certainty comes in. So create that trusted environment where people can say, I don't think that's the right approach. Where people can say, "Uh, I I don't know how to do this. Where people say, I got something wrong. There's a great story from Phil Jones, the CEO of Brother UK in in Just Ask, where he talked about an important client had ordered uh, a, a a very expensive component, I'm trying to remember the exact details off the top of my head, uh, a very expensive component of which I think there were only two and it had to be shipped around the world and someone had made a mistake in the order and they owned up to it early mm-hmm. and they could speak to the client, they could explain what had happened they could find a solution and deal with it before it was too late to do so you need a culture which makes mistakes okay as long as you admit them straight away so that we can work on a solution together. So I think that's a really important element of it. The other thing though is that you could become over-enthusiastic as a leader and you could try and be everyone's mentor and friend. You can try and find all of their solutions and from my really appalling experience of being a manager in my 20s, in my early 20s, I made the mistake of getting too close to my staff Mm -hmm. and uh, not being able to credibly pull them up when I needed to, because I'd got too close. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to be a leader and a confidant. So I think that you can be the resource that points them to the right confidant, that creates the environment for them to find it, rather than being that confidant yourself. Now, that's my experience. Again, Phil Jones in Just Ask. When I interviewed Phil for the role, for the book and phil is one of the best leaders i know when i interviewed him the first thing he said is you need to talk to ronnie and ronnie was someone who worked in phil's warehouse and i've got ronnie's story in the book ronnie um his wife left him one day and it destroyed him and he was totally off his game at work and someone said you need to talk to phil and he said, no one listened to me like him before. And he gave him some resources and a book to read. And, but he listened to him. So I think, you know, it depends on your personal leadership style. It mm-hmm. depends on your relationship with your team. It depends on your abilities as a mentor and a coach and a, and a, a person, an empath. Um, but I think there is a line that you wouldn't cross, which is to become their personal uh, counsellor. I think that yeah. becomes very difficult. So those were the two things I'd look at. Create the right culture. Lead that culture by demonstrating the right behaviours yourself. But don't expect to take it all. And, and don't take it all on your own shoulders because that's not healthy for you either.
0: So uh, what I'm hearing is that a large part of just asking actually is about just listening.
1: I Yes, I I, I, I do like that. And, and that works both ways. Because yeah. when you ask and I talk about this in the book when you ask you need to listen to what people say doesn't mean you have to implement it it's your life it's your career it's your choice but you need to weigh up the information that comes in and you have to respect it when people offer their time and their their, their valuable expertise or experiences and give you their opinion
0: well, what's the one or two things that leaders can do to be a little bit more vulnerable is there any anything that you can recommend
1: yes yes uh, I, I think a lot of what I've just talked about in terms of not expecting to be perfect and not having all the answers, I would uh, suggest asking questions before you come up with a solution. Even if you think you know the solution, ask. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you think we should approach this? What approach would you take? You can go with your own solution at the end of the day, but but involve people in the conversation. Uh, find people who you are comfortable with being completely open and honest with people who will not judge you, mm-hmm. people who will have discretion and people whose judgments you trust. Those are the three things you're looking for. Um, ideally, not with no conflict of interest, i.e. not in your in your um, in your division, in your line of management up or down. Get a mentor, get a coach, uh, people that will push you and challenge you and call out your BS when you need them to mm. Get a mastermind group or an accountability group, things like that.
0: Or a coach through Frank and Phyllis. <laughs> or a coach um, through Frank. I
1: did say coaching.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I just want to share, and I think I believe I shared this with uh, on your podcast. But I believe I, I want to share this because this is relevant. I don't like heights, and about six months ago, uh, as a family, we went to the South Island here in New Zealand. And we climbed a waterfall and I was absolutely massively out of my comfort zone. First thing, I had to have some self-talking and help myself realize I wasn't in danger whilst I was massively uncomfortable. But the biggest thing that I I got from it is that I was showing massive vulnerability uh, with my two kids and the relationship dynamic absolutely shifted after that kind of morning session just because they saw me in a completely different space. Um, and actually what I've done since then is, is that I've continued to put myself in, in situations and, and areas where I am not the, uh, you know, the, the best at and I'm learning and I'm growing. And actually when you, when you do that and you've got a team around you, they see you in a different light and actually they're there to support you because they might be more comfortable with heights, etc. So I just wanted to share that because I think that's really important. So we both share a love and a passion for underperforming football
1: teams. <laughs> Seriously underperforming. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah we probably should have a conversation every time we speak as to whose team is worse at that moment in time. Help me understand how football has, has served a big part for you in your life.
1: <laughs> uh, earlier this evening uh, I, I saw, I'm a Charlton Athletic fan Uh, So at the point we're recording this, a a club that I would argue belongs in the top half of the championship or in the Premier League is near the bottom of the third division. Uh, That's seriously underperforming. Um, But there was a photo on Twitter from the Charlton Athletic Museum of uh, September 1985, the corner terrace between the covered end and the main stand there used to be a little corner terrace there um that was the last game at the valley before we were kicked out to ground share for seven years and there's this this energy on that terrace you can just feel the energy coming out of this this uh picture and i'm in there somewhere i know i was standing i can't see myself i was i'm short now i was really short then um i can't see myself in the picture much to my frustration um but I know I'm in there somewhere with that energy. Um, when I was a kid, I had a temper on me. I remember wrecking my sister's room at one stage, you know, ripping everything off the walls and so on. We used to fight like cat and dog. Then I started going to football and I started shouting in players instead. No, I, <laughs> I started singing and chanting and so on. And, and it vented for me. And I'm much more calm and serene when I go to football now. I have to, for several yep. reasons. But I just found it's a place just to leave everything else behind. It, oh, oh. it, it It's a community. And and I, I, I've lost a bit of that community at my football for various reasons. I boycotted for five years because of the ownership. I, I I think the values, I don't share values with the people I used to go with regularly and various reasons. So I'm re-finding the right community. I still know loads of people there, but I'm still finding that that bonded community I used to have, but having said all of that, there's that community, there's that family. Uh, one of the supporters who hadn't missed a game, he went to one thousand and forty seven consecutive home and away matches over I don't know what period. Quite a young guy, you know, I think younger than forty uh, was one of the earliest um, victims of COVID, and um, they've unleashed a, a, a unveiled a, a, a mural. At the ground to him uh, this weekend, uh, raised twenty thousand pounds for it. You know that's the community I'm talking about, and it gives you a sense of belonging that's that somewhere else. It gives it's another family. You know the valley is my second home. A defeat doesn't ruin my weekend in the way it used to, which is lucky at the moment. Um, you know I I went to I went to a game at Wickham last weekend, um, my first away game for three years because of the pandemic and and, and various other things. I left after 65 minutes it was so awful it was and I don't do wow. that but it was terrible yeah, yeah. um and but it, I still enjoyed my weekend now that would have ruined my weekend when I was younger so I think it's about getting the balance right and having your life outside which maybe I didn't do enough of when I was younger it cost me a few girlfriends mm-hmm. um but yeah I think I think that probably explains it and when I was a kid because I didn't come through the traditional route of your dad supports this team therefore you do my dad wasn't into football and I remember I don't know if I've told you this I think I have when I was seven years old or so we were driving in the car I remember where we were I said daddy who's top of the league and he said Nottingham Forest (laughs) and I said I support them and I got home and I said "Mummy, I support who was it dad (laughs) and then every day in the papers after that I remember Brian Clough being on the back pages probably the front pages every day after that and I I I supported Forrest for years and then a a schoolmate started taking me to Charlton uh, or or inviting me along with him and I I would sit in the covered end behind the goal and I would sing every song other than we love you Charlton we do because that would be this loyal to Forest and then I got to the point where I thought this is ridiculous this, you know I'm going every week I'm going to away games this is my local team um, uh, and, and I switched
0: I, I never knew that story okay. um, I just want to touch on a couple of things for, for me what I've always found with going to football and it's just football it could be anything is that in, in the way that my brain thinks and I, I'm always thinking I always find that when I'm watching football it, I know really only when I'm watching my team Forest is that I have this? I'm able to completely switch yeah. off, and I've got full focus and full concentration. Uh, to the extent now that you know, um, on the other side of the world, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning just to just to have the uh, uh, the embarrassment of riches of my, mainly watching my team lose, but at least for two hours, I pretty much can switch yeah. off and concentrate. Um, just as we kind of come to the end, there's a couple of things I just want to I, I want to um, ask. Uh, this. This concept of uh, just ask and connected leadership, for me, it feels as if we're just scratching the surface. And actually, as we, we think about the way that organisations are moving forward with B corporations and you know the millennials that are coming through and you know purposeful leadership, etc., it feels as if this is a this is only a topic that's going to get going to get bigger. If people that are listening to this are going, okay, this is something I want to know know more about, not just from uh, your stuff, but where else should they be looking to find out more? Um,
1: I I think there's a lot of people are are really starting to cotton on to the fact that we need to be building relationships and we need to be thinking a different way about it. I think you can be looking at work from people like Brené Brown and Adam Grant uh, are great resources. I would... Definitely recommend a book by Matthew Syed called Rebel Ideas, which is all about cognitive diversity. In other words, having different perspectives and different ideas. It's a brilliant book um, and I I would heavily recommend that. As a sports fan, there are some um, fantastic podcasts uh, with sports stars that really give you an insight into leadership. So you've got the High Performance Podcast and then you've got Simon Mundy, M-U-N-D-I-E. Both very similar where they they interview very high level um, sports leaders uh, about their story, but they bring so much out of them. And I like interviews like that because it's not all theory. It comes from, you know, it's translate where their success came from. Um, uh, yeah. and learn from it which is what I try and do on, on, on in my interviews a lot of the time is bringing people from different fields who aren't theorists they're not speakers but we can learn a lot from, from, from their experiences um, so, so those would probably be some of the resources that jump to mind um, straight away without uh, being pre-warned about the question
0: last question for me if you were going to be really frank and fearless what's the one thing that really scares you that you should actually do it <laughs>
1: Um, I need to take the business to another level. I need to get out of that, that gamble, not that gamble, I need to get out of that space where you're selling time and and create a more sustainable long-term business. And And that will come through a number of ideas I've had, but I just constantly prevaricate and it's putting yourself really out there and going for something bigger Um, and it'll be putting those into action. So whether it's uh, retreats for senior leaders And not in terms of the type of retreats that you will have run with with Vistage, for example, um, but very much focused on hand-picked people from my network um, who I think should connect with each other and learn from each other as one-off events for for a two-day retreat. Um, I have a very... High-level network to to a large degree, and I'm constantly connecting people, but taking that to another level is something I was starting to do pre-pandemic, and I need to find the courage to do that again. I have some ideas for um, a, 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 an online community for the HR community, looking at vulnerability as well. Um, so there's ideas like that, but it's partly I think part of it is genuine that I'm juggling a lot of balls, and you focus on what 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 keeps the business going day to day. And I need to find that space to put these into action. Part of it is the uh, pandemic gave me the excuse not to do it, particularly with the retreats, because obviously they're physical meetings. Um, And I I need to stop prevaricating and stop making excuses.
0: Well, Andy, you've... uh... You've put it out to the universe and it's uh, now pre-recorded. So uh, we will be checking back in with you. Uh, This has been the Frank and Fearless Leadership Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Harris. If you've liked this, please make sure that you subscribe and please ensure that you share with those people that you feel should be listening. Bye for now.